love for you to take God's word and turn to Mark chapter number 14 this morning. So if you uh, are willing and able, let's stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. And we'll take up our reading this morning in verse number 22 and end in 26. You read these words. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you again just for the privilege it is just to be in the house of God. Father, I thank you already for the presence that you've made known. Father, I thank you, Father, for the prayers and for the teaching that's already been spoken this morning, Father, not only in my own ears, but also in my children's ears and the children of this church. Father, I thank you for their love for the truth. I thank you for... Um, the love of the truth that you've given us um, here at, at this congregation. And Father, pray that um, you would help us to honor you in the, in the clear, uh, definitive proclamation of God's word. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful this morning as we approach the text. Um, Father, I pray that you would give clarity and direction in, in the meaning of the, of the text. Father, I pray that you would take what may be an old familiar verse and make it new and make it alive in our hearts and in our souls. Uh, Father, um, we need you this morning. And we come to you, I pray, um, with humble hearts, recognizing that apart from your grace, uh, nothing will be accomplished. Father, we pray that um, the manifest presence of God would be um, with us this morning as we go to your word, that we would know that you're there Father, that you would speak to us in a unique way um, and that you would, uh, this morning, if it be your will, Father, that you would bring dead men to life, dead women to life. And Father, if we're all here believers, that you would bring dead portions of our hearts alive and make them new. Help us, Lord, to depend upon you more. Help us to see our utter incapability, Father, and help us to trust you this morning as we come to the text. Father, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Interestingly enough, this portion of Scripture has been one of the most encouraging portions of Scripture to my heart throughout the entirety of the book of Mark. Um, which is interesting because um, in some ways, um, it's an old familiar text. So you come to the scriptures, you prepare a sermon, and you, you start to take notes and things like that, and you wonder, what will I say that is different than what I've already said? I mean, there's a danger in uh, coming to a text like this and you sitting there and listening to a text that you've heard probably a hundred if not a thousand times. And I've probably heard it every single time that we have um, taken the Lord's table in some form. This is um, what Paul will quote 
in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Um, but it's been encouraging to me possibly because of a place that I've been in my own heart, I'm struggling um, on many days to look to Christ and to just simply depend upon Him. And what you find in this text is just um, a tremendous amount of incalculable grace that I pray the Lord ministers to your heart this morning as He provokes us to think and to look on Him. We find here instruction in the Lord's table. Our Lord institutes um, what we would refer to as communion or the Lord's Supper or um, the Lord's table. But before we get into that, I would like to just say a word um, about the grace of God. Um, what God gives us here in this text, and not only in this text, but all throughout Scriptures, and particularly in the person of Christ, is an immeasurable amount of grace. As He utilizes certain things, signs and symbols, emblems, pictures, shadows, to draw us towards Him. One of the... Um, one of the greatest truths that you and I will ever grasp um, as a Christian is what is, is what is many Christians throughout the ages has referred to as uh, the condescension of Christ. You know, we use the term condescension, and when we use the term condescension, it's nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, in a negative way. Uh, that if you were to look up the word condescension today in an English dictionary, um, what you would find is, is a very negative connotation. It's almost a derogatory type of literary device in which um, one person shows his superiority or her superiority over another. Um, it, it may end like this, someone very offended because um, as an adult they were spoken to as a child. You know, um, they, weren't, they weren't treated as an equal. And we can condescend or be condescending in a number of ways to a number of people, and we're probably all guilty at some point of this. Um, but it wouldn't be condescending to speak to a child like a child. That would actually be appropriate. Um, it would actually be very inappropriate and wrong um, to speak to a child in a way that a child could not understand. It's not negative. It would actually be positive. For someone to come down to the level of the other person and speak in such a way to communicate appropriately that, that whatever it is is trying to be communicated can be communicated to that person. To recognize, in some sense, the, the, the difference and level of thinking between an adult and a child um, is extremely important in that communication process. So when Christians throughout the ages have referred to the condescension of Christ, they haven't referred to it in a, a negative way but in a positive way. Um, but the incarnation of Christ particularly um, is the Lord Jesus Christ condescending. He which is superior coming to that which is inferior. And the condescension of Christ finds its fullest expression in the person of Christ. Um, probably best illustrated in Philippians chapter number 2. But the reality of that is that Christ came, that He became like us, that He, he subordinated Himself to human nature and came uh, to be like us in all points so that He could save us. Um, but the reality is, is that well, while that's the sine qua non of, of condescension, um, it's not the totality of it. The reality is, is that God's been doing that 
all along. Um, he's always been Emmanuel, God with us, in its fullest expression of Jesus Christ. But, but since the beginning of time, He began doing that. And He does it even up to this day. God understands the incalculable gap between Himself and man, and it extends even beyond our sin. What many people uh, mean when they speak of the great chasm between God and man is that man is sinful and God is not. Um, if we could only deal with the sin problem, they think, we could remove the gap. And while that's certainly true to some extent, the gap is still there. The gap was already there prior to the fall. Um, the gap's still there for those who are redeemed today. The gap will still be there throughout all eternity. Why? Because when God created us, and when God redeemed us, and when, God will, uh, when we will be eternally sanctified, we will still not be God's. Because we're not God and we'll never be. For there will ever be a, a, a great chasm and a gap between us and God. But He's still, even to this day, beyond the angels and all of their perfection. Even in His presence with a practical righteousness, the Scriptures are clear that the angels veil their faces and are ignorant of all of His attributes, um, at least experientially, um, such as grace. They don't understand that the gap is still there. That it's because of this gap, this superiority, that we have all that, that we will, even as perfect, sinless creatures, spend all of eternity ascribing to him the glory due his name, either on our faces or in service to him, even in all of our perfection. That he's far beyond us, so much so that he will be condescending to us for the ages to come. That this is what he has always done whether it was in the garden when He condescended to Adam and Eve, even in their innocence. He condescended to preaching, to, in the preaching of Noah to those um, whom uh, heard Him. He condescended in the giving of judgment in the flood and in the giving of the rainbow um, to God's people and to the world. He condescended in coming to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. He condescended in the giving of the law. He condescended in the proclamation of the gospel to Adam and Eve and by farther steps throughout the old covenant until it found its fullest fulfillment in Christ. You know what? He, he, he condescended in giving us a Bible. That the word that we have before us today is God um, closing the gap in some sense between Himself and between us. God doesn't, God's native language is not English. Nor was it Hebrew. No, He speaks to us as we can understand. He uses languages that we know. He talks to us in a way that we can relate. He leaves us pictures throughout the Old Testament and the New. Why? So that we might know Him. Whether it's a tabernacle or a temple, whether it's a rainbow or a circumcision, whether it's sacrifices or it's feasts, whether it's words or it's prophecies, whether it's types or it's shadows or pictures, God has been condescending all along, coming to us, leaving all around us natural and supernatural grace and conscience and creation, but also special revelation as He reaches out and He speaks to a people who do not deserve such grace. And He does it in a way that we can understand. And that's what we see here. Not only do we see it here, but uniquely here, we see it um, converge. We see that grace um, converge upon two pictures that converge into one. Namely, the Passover and the Lord's Supper. That's what we read in the text. We read earlier as, as our Lord approaches um, His death and His ultimate sacrifice and His ultimate payment of that great sin debt, He does it on the week of Passover. 
Um, our Lord has given, given instructions to the disciples to prepare for the Passover. Um, a, a Passover in which they have possibly um, celebrated for decades now and possibly um, at least three times with our, our Lord. So we see the institution of the Lord's Supper in the week of Passover. And we actually see not only in the week of Passover, but at the night of Passover. That this is the night in which our Lord will sit down with them and, take, and partake of the Passover meal in such a way that He will utilize the very means of grace there um, within that meal to institute a perpetual um, symbol, a perpetual sign, a perpetual um, expression of grace to God's people for at least two more millennia. And we would uh, know it as um, the Lord's Supper. We would know it as communion, fellowship, not only with one another, but, but with our Lord. And these two pictures converge in this one night. And what a blessing it is to see both of them. The purpose of which is to both teach of His death. Um, that's what we see. We see here that Christ's death is, is seen in terms of the Passover. It's seen in terms of um, the, the, the Lord's table. It's, it's even quoted possibly out of Isaiah. We see here that um, that great picture that we refer to as the Passover. I mean, and we know as we look back, I don't know that they fully understood it, but we know that as we look back and we see the, the New Testament, particularly the Apostle Paul and others, um, meditate and expound upon the Passover, we know that, that it must have been a unique experience as Peter as Matthew, as these other men reflect upon what they did that night, but also possibly even previous years. Can you imagine for just a moment to think about taking the Passover with the Passover? That 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul refers to Jesus Christ as our Passover. That for the institution of century, the, the institution of the Passover centuries previous, um, the nation of Israel gathered together to sacrifice a Passover lamb. I mean, they would do it as a memorial to what God had accomplished in ages past in the nation of Israel by delivering them out of the land of Egypt and the land of slavery. But what they would possibly forget or not know is that there was one coming, a Passover lamb who would fully and finally be that one which would take away all of their sin. That it was just a type, it was a shadow um, of that one which was to come. You'll remember the Passover. Uh, the nation of Israel locked into the land of Egypt. God sends a man by the name of Moses um, to free His people. After a long campaign, our Lord delivers them through plagues, and that final plague would be the one in which the firstborn of, of every house would die, not only in Egypt, but in Israel. But God would make a provision for His people. That a spotless lamb, that a, that a beast of, of innocence would be brought forth. It would be examined. It would be inspected. It would be chosen. It would be raised for this purpose for centuries to come, and it would finally be slaughtered. We would too find that now Christ our Passover lamb would as well. 
Just as the blood of that innocent lamb was applied to the doorposts and lentils of a Jewish home and God would pass over them to Christ's blood, which was offered in a heavenly tabernacle, not made by the hands of men, must too be applied to the hearts of mankind that their sins would be forgiven and a divine righteousness might be placed upon their account. But at this point, it's a, I think it's important to note that this is not a parallel that it wasn't as if the blood of bulls and goats and accomplished redemption under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant people rejected Christ and God adopted a new covenant with a new people and made a, a comparable atonement. But this isn't the case. Um, this is not parallelism. This is no parallel. This is type and antitype. This is prophecy and fulfillment. This is shadow and substance. The writer of Hebrews is very clear that the, the, the blood of bulls and goats never accomplished the taking away of sins. It says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of things uh, of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. It couldn't do it. Um, the nation of Israel, as they brought lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb, year after year after year after year, and sacrifice week and week and sometimes days after day after day, not one of those ever accounted for taking away one sin. That's what Hebrews writes. That this wasn't a provision to take away sins. This was a provision to cover them until Christ came. And Hebrews is very clear that Christ's atonement was, was one atonement for all. For all eternity and for all mankind. And that if any man was saved, he was saved not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when Christ came, the shadows are gone. When Christ comes, the types are no longer. When Christ comes, the substance is, is here. And that's what we see. Passover Himself administering Passover to His people. Not to save them but to point them to the One, that, that spotless Lamb of God that, that, that John the Baptist would preach about has come to take away the sins of the world. And you would see this last Passover converge upon the institution and inauguration of a new covenant and a new supper and a new symbol and a new sign. And that's what He says, Mark, 20, uh, Mark uh, 14 and verse 24, that this is My blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Matthew 20, uh, and there's some debate on Mark as to whether that, 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 fr that term new is actually there. If you have an ESV or an NASB, it may not. Uh, there's a textual issue there that some believe that it's not. The New King James, the King James keeps it uh, because in some texts it's there. But regardless of that, if you were to go to Matthew 26, 28, or you were to go to Luke chapter 22, verse 19, you would find it explicitly there. Luke says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. That what Jesus is doing by the institution of the new of the of, of, of the new covenant and the inauguration is also giving with it a new sign or a new symbol, a new a new picture of, of what exactly is to come and what he is there to do. And there's no doubt in my mind that that as the, the, the literal Passover sits there and, and administers the new Passover, there's a contrast and a parallel in some sense. There's a type and a shadow. But even in His words, we see a contrast. That, 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 that what you'll find is that, that this is almost verbatim a, um, a quote from Exodus chapter 24 and verse number 8 when Moses inaugurates the Old Covenant. You read these words, and Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. 
What you find is that, that throughout the Old Testament, particularly, and in the New Covenant, that, that, that covenants are generally, typically um, ratified or inaugurated by, by the shedding of blood. You'll remember in Genesis 15 um, that Abraham is going to, that God is going to inaugurate a covenant with Abraham. What does God do? He puts Abraham to sleep. He, he, he slaughters a beast. He separates the parts and God himself walks through. And what he's signifying there is, it was actually literally phrased as the cutting of a covenant in former days. That what he did was he cut a covenant. God cut a covenant there with himself. That many times in, uh, from, from a human uh, horizontal perspective, that what you have is covenant made with uh, man, man with man. And they would cut a covenant. What they would do is they would slay a beast. They would separate his part and both parts. Both men would walk between those covenants oftentimes. And, and they, would, they would promise to keep whatever the stipulations of the covenant were. I promise to do this. You promise to do that. If not, this is the repercussions of that. That's exactly what God was doing. God was establishing a covenant upon Himself. Abraham, I don't need you. Um, I, I, he, it was a unilateral covenant with Himself in which um, He put Himself in between the beasts. And if He doesn't keep covenant, it's, He's signifying and saying that I will be like these beasts. Um, that blood will be upon my head. That's what men would do. They would say that, that if covenant was broken, then, then, then we would take upon ourselves the wrath of this covenant. That we would be dead. That we should die like, these, like this beast. That's why we walked between it. That's exactly what God is doing. Um, in some sense, that's what He did in the Old Covenant. He ratified it and inaugurated it with, a, um, with, a, with the shedding of blood. Um, and he said, do this, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus chapter 26, and I'll do that. But you have to do this. And if you don't, then I'll do this. You see covenant promises, you see covenant consequences, you see covenant um, blessing and covenant condemnation. And you see exactly what happened as a result of Israel's disobedience. Um, God poured out His wrath upon them. In a mighty way. Why? Because they, in some sense, walked between the pieces with God and said to God, we'll keep covenant. And if not, then this will be um, our end. And it was. It was a covenant which was never able to accomplish really what, um, what was desired in some sense. Not that it was a bad covenant, not that it was an inadequate, inadequate covenant. It was a, God refers to it particularly as a good covenant. It was a righteous covenant. It was a blessed covenant. With it was attached the blessings of God. If one could keep the covenant. Um, the, the problem came with those who made the covenant, not with the covenant itself. That man in his sin was inevitably unable to keep the covenant. And we find in the New Covenant, under the New Testament, that God... Um, establishes a new covenant and says that the old covenant was a law in which had a purpose and that purpose was to teach man and that he was um, incapable to achieve the righteousness which the law demanded. Thus man should come to the end of himself and, 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 and cry out to God in repentance and faith. But the old covenant um, was a covenant of blood. The old covenant was a covenant of death. And thus God would come and He would inaugurate a new covenant. And this is a direct reference to Jeremiah chapter number 31. Not only that, it's a, what you find in Ezekiel chapter number 36 is a reference also to the new covenant. 
And what you find is a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And you read these words in verse number 19, as the judgment came upon the nation of Israel. He says, So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And they came to the nations wherever they went. They profaned my holy name. When they said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had gone out of, this land, out of His land. But I had concern for my holy name, he says, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. What you find in the new covenant as Jesus comes is this constant continual disobedience and inability um, to keep the covenant that He had made with them under the old regime. Thus God says, I will make a new covenant with you. It doesn't depend upon you. It's, a, it's as if He's with Abraham and He cuts the lamb Himself and He walks between. It's as if Jesus' body and blood are there and Jesus is the sacrifice and God walks between it. Um, and it's irrespective and regardless of, of you and I. He says, I'm tired of your disobedience. Therefore, I will create and, and, and establish a new covenant. That the Passover is here. That doesn't depend upon man. It's a gracious covenant. It's a unilateral covenant. Jeremiah says, that all those that are within that covenant He will keep. All those that are within that covenant He will establish. Thus here we see in Mark chapter number um, 14 as well as Matthew and Luke and 1 Corinthians 11 this, this word of the establishment of, of a new covenant. And it's seen in a sacrifice. Presumably a sin offering. That, that last phrase in Mark chapter 14 there. Um, where he says, and he said to them, This is the blood of my new of the new covenant, which is shed for many. That's probably a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 10 through 12, where he speaks of being uh, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul a sin offering for his soul an offering for sin, he shall, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. What our Lord does here is that he takes the final Passover, of which he's the substance, and he inaugurates, and he prophesies of the inauguration in just possibly one to two days of the new covenant with his own blood, and he gives a sign and a symbol of that new covenant, which emblemizes um, what he accomplished. And is to be a help and a beacon of light for His disciples throughout the ages to point them to the work of the cross. That's what we find in the Lord's table. But this is what God has been doing throughout the ages. 
condescending to man to establish a relationship with him, speaking to him in ways that he can understand what grace God has extended to us, not only in the Passover, but also in the Lord's table. J.C. Ryle says this, he says, did the Passover remind the Jew that none of his forefathers were safe from the destroying angel? In the night when he slew the firstborn, unless he actually, uh, unless he actually ate of the slain lamb, no doubt it did. But it was meant to be a guide to his mind to the higher far lesson that all who would receive benefit from Christ's atonement must actually feed upon Him by faith and receive Him into their hearts. But what our Lord is doing here is leaving us little crumbs, if you will, to point us towards Him. He did it in promises. He did it in prophecies. He did it in shadows. And He did it in types. And under the new covenant, in some way, He does the exact same thing. But what we find here is a blessing to the church. I mean, this is particularly what's been a blessing to my own heart over the last few days. That the purpose of the Lord's table that we take week in and week out or, or month to month or as often as we do it has a particular purpose. And that purpose is to point us to Christ. Um, I, I don't have anything inherently new or fresh to give you this morning other than the reality that Jesus Christ loved the world in such a capacity that He enters into it and gives His own flesh and His own blood on our behalf and on behalf of, of you. That the Lord's table is to continually and perpetually point us to Him. That it is to humble us. That it is to work in us um, something that, that previously maybe we did not have. And that's, and that's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Because I come from a tradition in which the Lord's table um, was just that. It was merely a tradition. You know, th there's so many different views on the Lord's table. If you study time and you study history, you study the ages, you study churches, and what you're going to find is this extreme gambit, this spectrum upon what people believe about the Lord's table. For example, some believe that the elements here are physical. They actually believe that whenever Mark, uh, Matthew, and Luke refer um, and, and recount our Lord's um, our Lord's institution of the Lord's Supper, that when Jesus Christ Himself institutes the Lord's Supper and He says, take, eat, this is My body. Take, eat, this is My blood. That our Lord is actually referencing and thanking God in a, in a, in a supernatural way. And when He does, it, it, it literally changes the, 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 the elements of the bread and the cup into His physical body. For example, one, um, one council writes this, the change of the whole substance of bread into the substance of the body of Christ and the whole substance of wine into the substance of His blood, this change is brought about in the Eucharistic prayer through the efficacy of the Word of Christ and by the action of the Holy Spirit. However, the outward characteristics of bread and wine, that is the Eucharistic species, remain unaltered. 
Um, and what you would find is that you would find that they believed that whenever the priest would pray over the bread and the wine, that it would literally become the blood and the body of Christ. And in it, you would partake of the whole divine Christ. In soul and divinity, they would say. And they believed this with such um, fervor that they actually, in a council, um, condemned all man that did not believe this as anathema, accursed, or condemned. This has not been a small issue. Not even among them, but among Protestants and Lutherans, that many men have shed blood over this issue of the Lord's table. Um, many men that we would quote today, to be honest with you. Um, but at the same time, I mention that in part because of the extreme on that end. And many of you look around and maybe you're thinking, he doesn't even need to say that. That just sounds silly. Maybe it does. But it wasn't silly to, to thousands and it wasn't silly to generations. But I don't necessarily say it because I think that you're privy to fall into that camp. I say it probably because I think we're privy to fall in the other extreme. That the Lord's table is nothing more than just a tradition. It's something that is an addendum to the end of the service. It's an appendix um, to our to our relationship with the Lord. It's something that we can simply take or simply leave. I mentioned the shedding of blood and the fighting of men over the Lord's table. And some of you think that that's probably silly and maybe that we've matured and just grown out of that. But the reality is, is that I don't think that there's much fighting over the Lord's table anymore because I don't think many people care about the Lord's table. I think that it's something that has become um, uh, possibly something that is that is um, that is negotiable within the people of God. It's something that is negotiable within the house of God. It's something that's negotiable within the church of God. It's something that's negotiable among among um, among denominations. It's something that's negotiable as you as an individual. Give me the preaching, or give me the teaching, or give me the worship. But the but, but the first thing that will often go. Um, will be the Lord's table. And if it isn't gone in practice, it's gone in our minds. But the reality is, is that it was fought over with such fervency throughout the ages because in the beginning, our Lord instituted it. In the beginning, it was a command of God. In the beginning, it represented something and accomplished something within the church and within the people of God that was unique to the people of God. Um, that it wasn't something that was an appendix or an addendum to the end of a service, that, that actually in the New Testament days, um, following not only the apostles, but, 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 but the early New Testament church, that it would have been um, irreprehensible to think about a Christian um, who did not partake of the Lord's table. Um, it would be akin to a failure to or intentionally um, avoid baptism. But what you find is that there were certain staples within the New Testament church and that signified their relationship not only with God but with one another to such an extent that, that, that the New Testament Christians that followed the apostles were ostracized, they were beaten, they were battered, they were mocked, and they were abused. And you know, one of the reasons that they were was because they partook of the Lord's table. I mean, if that happened today, we would just say, stop it. You know, tragedy comes within the church. Criticism comes within the church. Persecution comes within the church. And we would be looking to think about, well, what are the things that can go? 
One of the things that have went in recent days has been the Lord's table within the last two years. It was one of the first things. Not only our gathering, but um, particularly the Lord's table. That in the New Testament church, because they took of the Lord's table and they quoted our Lord about His blood and His body, they were branded as cannibals. They were branded as flesh eaters. They were branded because of their relationship with one another and their relationship with God and the practices that He had given them. They were mocked and ridiculed and persecuted, beaten, battered, bruised, and some left for dead. Why? Because they took the Lord's table. Why? Because they believed that God ordained and commanded baptism. And therefore, they held fast to the things that God had left them. They held fast to the traditions of the apostles as God inspired them to. That I don't believe that we'll walk away today with an extreme sense of um, literally the, the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ and partaking of a perpetual sacrifice on behalf of our Lord. But I do believe that we could walk away on the other extreme. And maybe you're there as well already. That some churches don't take the Lord's table at all, and if they do, they do it once a year. Um, if a Christian was to miss a service, they would fall, fail to take communion for years. That most churches would be ashamed to openly break any of the Ten Commandments, yet they're not ashamed of breaking the plain command of Christ to take the Lord's table. To trust Him that He left it for a purpose, and if, and if there's a purpose in it, then we need it. And, that we, and, re, and the reality is, is that we need the Lord's table because we need Christ. That, that while we, we don't argue that the, the blood of Jesus Christ, or that, that, that the cup and the wine, the, the, the bread and the wine, literally um, form or change, transubstantiate, change substance into the very body and blood of Christ, what we do recognize um, is that our Lord and Savior is in some way uniquely present as we take the, the, the bread and the cup by faith. That's what we find Paul arguing in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10 and chapter number 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, um, you read of the Lord's table when he writes these words. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless is not, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? That word communion, it literally means fellowship. In some way, what he's arguing is, is that they are steeped in idolatry. And that through idolatry and offering, offering up pagan sacrifices on altars and partaking of that meat, that, that they, they are communing with demons. You say, what does all that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. No clue. I'm not even going to speculate the mystery other than that, that what we do and what we believe and what, and, how, and, and, and what we do by what we believe, that the activities in which we partake and, the, and the, the reason behind it affects us. It influences us. It changes us. That's what he's saying. And he's saying that, 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 that when you take the Lord's table and you, com you literally commune with Christ in some way, uh, that you fellowship with Him, that He shares something with you. That's the idea of fellowship. We get together, we have a fellowship meal. What do we do? We share with one another. We share with one another faith. We share with one another encouragement. We share with one another food. We share with one another our lives. That was the life of the New Testament church. They gathered together as one body and as one blood, as, 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 with Christ as the head. 
And they shared with one another, but they also shared in Christ together. That's the idea. He says, for, though we, for, for we though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Then he goes on to, to talk about how they were giving to idols and how they, they, they fellowshiped with demons in verse 20. Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship, same word, with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Now, were they literally eating demons? No. Were they literally eating our Lord? The answer is no. That these are spiritual realities. And what they believed behind what they were doing would influence their souls. If you were to go back to 1 Corinthians 10 in the first portion, the foundation upon which that's birth, you'll read these words. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our example. The idea there is, is that there was a spiritual blessing through their obedience in which Christ has provided for them. And in the receipt of those things, they honored Christ, whom they did not have. Uh, that, that Christ was present with Moses, that Christ was present with Israel wow, through spiritual realities through uh, the enhancement or the, the activity of the Passover, through um, the, the, the obedience of and the receipt of manna from heaven and that rock in which flowed with water is the idea in which they were preserved and satisfied and refreshed as Moses breaks open the rock and the water comes out. You know what he says, Paul says? He says, says that that rock was Christ. That the Lord blessed in their obedience and their activity and refreshed and sustained them through Christ. It wasn't just physical water. It wasn't just physical bread. It wasn't just a physical lamb. That there was something else tied to that. Not literally Christ, but spiritually Christ. That, that, and spiritually signifies with it the, the, the activity of the very Spirit of God. It's, it's not imaginary. It's not just invisible. Um, literally, Spirit just means spirit. Spiritual means by the Spirit. That the Spirit of God was active under the Old Covenant even prior to Christ coming to accomplish spiritual things. Thus they could say, Paul could say with confidence that when they received the water, they received Christ. That He was there. He was among them. He was present with them. He was sharing something with them. He was fellowshipping with them. That Moses could say, I fellowshiped with Christ in this world and in this land as I was walking through the wilderness. As we received these blessings, I was worshiping Christ. More than that, I fellowshiped with Christ. And Paul is making the argument that New Testament church, that you, beloved, have that same blessing. That what we hold in our hands and what we will partake of in just a few moments is, is, is I know it's, it's bread and it's grape juice. <laughs> like I get it. I'm going to pray a prayer over it and there's not going to be any substantial change in the elements. But at the same time, there is, there is a reality that if we will take it by faith for what it is, 
that there are certain benefits in which Christ shares with us as we look to Him and as we long for Him and as we glory in the cross and as we think about His broken body for us and as we think about His blood that was shed on our behalf, that as we come to the table or we come to anything, this is about anything, I need to tell you that, that this is about most anything, that Christ comes to us, He condescends That Jesus is not a man of former days in which we look back to and we long for. That the church of today is is an inheritor of a present reality in which Christ fellowships with us in a unique way and in a very real way. A spiritual way, yes, but that doesn't mean an imaginary way. But in a unique spiritual way as the Spirit of God. Um, utilizes physical means to accomplish spiritual realities in our hearts. It's similar to you to receiving the Word of God. To receiving the Word of God is to receive Christ in some way. That, 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 that Paul argues in Galatians that, that as the, the, the gospel was preached, that they, they saw Christ. As far as we know, Christ was never in Galatia. He was never there physically with the churches. But with the eyes of faith, they they gripped a a spiritual reality that they could faithfully say um, with confidence, without lying, that Christ was with us. That Christ manifested Himself to us. That Christ fellowshiped with us. And I am a better man for it. Thus He accomplished eternal realities in my heart and life. That the bread and the cup are not physically the body of Christ, but they are spiritually. Um, that, that There is a spiritual presence as we partake of an activity that God ordained and instructed the church to do that accomplishes these, these, these eternal realities in our hearts as we partake of them by faith. The bread signifying, I think the, the best way to understand this is that the bread signifies, it represents, it is not. It's a metaphor. Just like in Revelation chapter 1 and 2 that the, the, the candlesticks are the church. It is the church or the churches. Um, that the Lord is my shepherd. That, that these realities are often communicated to us in a way that we can understand. That what he is saying is he's saying, I am the bread. Nathan read earlier, right? John chapter number 6. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the food which you need. I am the only thing that can sustain you. This bread is broken for you. That Jesus is speaking symbolically. He is saying that He is like bread. I mean, it is to teach us something about our Lord. And and what He's teaching us is is that, that what bread is to the body, Christ is to the soul. That's what he's signifying. He's saying, I am the bread of life in John 6. He's saying that I am the source of life. I am the giver of life. I am the sustainer of life. I am the strengthener of life. I am what gives life energy. I am what gives life life. That's what he says in John 6, 33, that this bread gives life to the world. To have this bread is to have life, he argues. To be without this bread is to be without life. That's what he says to the disciples and to the Pharisees and to the crowd there in John 6. 
I don't have time to go through it, but I would encourage you to go home and just read John 6. He preaches a sermon in which they won't, that most of them don't get and they don't understand. And it's born out of a reality. It's born out of the feeding of the 5,000. That what our Lord does here is He doesn't just come out with a sermon. It wasn't like He was doing His devotionals that morning and He thought as He was eating bread, man, this will be a great three-point sermon later. I'm going to give it to the disciples. Um, what you find is you find that in John chapter number 6, and that this sermon is born out of a miracle that he did, the feeding of the 5,000. What he does is that he feeds the 5,000 in a miraculous way. So what do the crowds do? They come for the signs. They come seeking a sign. They come for the bread. Our Lord um, interchanges with them after they chase him across the sea. Um, and you remember the story, I'm sure. That our Lord was with his disciples. He saw a multitude in which um, no man essentially could number. He does. It's 5,000 saved women and children. So it's so possibly fifteen to 20,000. He's sitting there. He's teaching. The disciples come. Philip comes and says, Lord, we've got to send them away. There's not enough. There's not enough. This is all we have in the bank. It's not enough. Our Lord, he disagrees though. He differs with them. What does he do? He instructs the disciples to sit them all down. And he takes five loaves and two fishes from a little boy and he extends it to the ends of the multitude. Takes it to the ends of the thousands. <laughs> Verse number 11 says, He distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish. I love this phrase. I highlighted this in my Bible yesterday. He says, as much as they wanted. He wasn't portion. He wasn't about portion control. He wasn't just meeting out um, little specks and little um, uh, pockets of of of, fee, of 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 bread and fish. He wasn't making it to such an extent to where he could actually spread out just five loaves and two fish um, to the multitudes. What he does is is miraculously this new creation or this 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 miracle of multiplication, such that he takes what he has and he feeds the multitudes, and he does it in such a way that that they can have as much as they want. And once they're done, the Bible says that, that the disciples gather up fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. That the twelve themselves had an abundance left over. What happens is, is that the, the, the crowds um, get wind of this, of course. They follow Him over and they provoke Him for more miracles. Hence, the sermon is born. <laughs> you know, He literally tells them, you're not seeking Me um, for, for a spiritual reality, you're simply seeking the bread. What you don't understand is, is that that won't sustain you. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the food that you need. I am the source of sustenance and satisfaction. That you run around, you're discontent and you're searching after idols and, and you've created a law of legalism in your own heart and you've created these standards that are outside of you and beyond you. And I'm right here. I'm right here. You're seeking, seeking to, 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 to fill your life with, 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 with miracles and with signs and with idols and with a hundred other things. And what you need is not those things. What you need is me. This is a, 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 a self-identifying um, deity. This is God saying, this is Jesus Christ saying, I'm God, you need me. I am the bread of life. With me, he says in verse 35, you shall never hunger. 
He who believes in me shall never thirst. You need me in your life. You need me in your soul. And if you don't have me, you don't have nothing. If you don't eat this bread, he says, you'll die. Not only that, but you'll live unsatisfied. It drives uh, the bread, we know, drives away the gnawing pain of emptiness on the inside. It eliminates the inner craving that can dominate your life when your hunger is out of control and you can't think of anything else. When you have bread, you're satisfied. That's the idea throughout scriptures that bread it sustains, bread strengthens, and bread satisfies. I read Deuteronomy 28:65 recently. And um, let me read it to you. This is part of the judgment upon Israel. He says, And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and the anguish of a soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, Oh, that it were evening. And at evening you shall say, oh, that it were morning because of the fear which terrifies your heart and because of the sight which your eyes see. This is who you are without Christ. This is who you are under the judgment of God. You are a restless soul filled with fear, filled with doubt, filled with anguish. And you're spending your days wishing they were gone, wishing others would come, trying to lessen each day with those with idols with relationships, with toys, um, with things in which will never satisfy. That's what these men were doing. He's saying that in Christ you'll find life. In Christ you will be satisfied. In, in Christ you will be contented like never before. Matthew, 20, or Matthew 5, 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be satisfied. That there is a hunger and a thirst within the soul of a man that drives him after anything and everything. Um, only to be left at the end of the day empty and lawless, discontent, furious, angry, bitter, confused, worried, anguishing, despairing, even of life. Our Lord was not just a a petty magician. He could have at any moment there just gave them bread. But He didn't feed their minds and He didn't feed their lust and He didn't feed their desires and God never does. But He says, I, you missed the whole point, guys. That the feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle in and of itself, but more than that, it was to teach you um, in some sense, what God is able to give and ultimately what you need. And not only that, but the amount in which God is able to give such that you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst. And it's what he says in John 6, right? That within his physical capabilities, he was able to give them as much as they wanted. And from a spiritual perspective this morning, he says to them and he says to us the same thing. I am the bread of life. I am that which is your sustenance, that which will sustain you and the only thing that could ever satisfy you. And the reality is, is this morning, you have as much of me as you want. You have as much of Christ this morning as you can measure out. 
That what he's arguing here is he literally says in John chapter 6 later on that, that, that unless you eat my flesh and that unless you drink my blood, um, which is the problem that they had with the sermon, he says, you cannot, you cannot be my disciple. You will not have life. You're dead in your sins. And what the problem they had with it was just the physical nature of the idea. Um, it's what seems to be, that's why they say this is a hard saying. But, but, but really what our Lord is arguing is that it's figurative. The, the, the eating and the drinking is the coming by faith. That it is synonymous with believing. That's the idea. It is coming to Christ. It is partaking Him. It is feeding on Christ. It is eating His flesh and His blood. Is, 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 is the same as coming to Him and partaking of all that He has and believing in Him and becoming as He is. That's the idea. That's what salvation is. Salvation is feeding on Christ. In a similar way that you would feed on bread, that bread comes into your mouth and it goes into your body and it literally becomes part of your flesh and your blood. You know? And the more iron that you eat in greens, and the more iron you carry in your blood, there is a, 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 a reality that, that once it is consumed, it becomes a part of you. That it cannot be separated. It cannot any longer be meted out. Once it enters the body and the digestion process happens, it becomes a part of you. Boys and girls, your mom and dad say may, may say, you are what you eat. That's true. That's not only true physically, that's true spiritually. That we as believers, as we come by faith in Christ, we are united to Him in such a way that we take Him in to us and He takes us into Him and thus we become like Him and He is part of us. Thus, Paul can say things like, when He died, you died. Now that He lives, you live. You, beloved, are seated in heavenly places. That there's such a union with Christ and you've partaken of Him by faith in such a way that the benefits are ministered to you in immeasurable ways in Christ. That's the idea. That you this morning are called to believe. That you are to come to Christ by faith in Him and receive all the benefits of Christ as much as you want. And the reality is, that struck me this week, is over the past several weeks, I've been struggling in my own soul, wanting more of Christ. And it's not because He's stayed the gates of the floods. It's not because He's closed the gates. It's because I've been inherently, <laughs> just introspectively self-deprecating to such a point that I won't look away from myself and look to Christ. You know? We can, we, can, we can veil it as a, as a pious humility when, when all it is, is is a veiled arrogance and pride. You know, we can even escalate and exalt that type of mentality among Reformed communities or Bible-believing churches that preach the gospel about, about a godly sorrow and a repentance, but a, a godly sorrow that never returns to Christ is not a godly sorrow at all. It is a worldly sorrow that leads to death. That says, woe is me, what am I to do? At some point, men, at some point, women, at some point, boys and girls, you must look to Christ. That's what the table does for us this morning. That's the whole purpose of it. That you may come to Christ this morning, not only in initial faith and repentance, receiving the salvation for which the Son died, but that you may perpetually keep coming. Have you ever wondered why baptism is a one-time event? 
But the Lord's table is a perpetual ceremony or, 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 or activity that we carry out as believers. Because the truth is, is that you eat this bread once and, you'll, and you realize that you need this bread every week. You realize that, 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 that your union with Christ has satisfied that eternal hunger and those, that thirst for God. But there is a sense in which in this sinful life, we carry with us the struggles and the, the sins and the curses of a fallen world. Thus, we come back to Him week after week after week after week, needing more and more and more and more of Christ. Thus, we come to the table to fellowship with Him. We come to the table to fellowship with uh, one another. We come to the table simply to receive Christ once again. Not in a saving way, but in a sanctifying way. That we come as sinners saved by the grace of God and we partake of it by faith. That it is in the Lord's table that is one of those many places that we find Him. And we find Him as He is. We find Him not watered down. We find Him in His fullness with His broken body and with His shed blood. Thus, we open the table up to all who will come. But only those that will come by faith. That that's the requirement this morning. I struggle sometimes with, with presenting the Lord's table. I'll just be honest with you. I come from a tradition that really didn't honor the Lord's table at all. And you come within a reformed community and it's almost like you're scared to administer to anybody. I mean, what if I do it to an unbeliever? And I'm not saying that that we should just administer it willy-nilly to anyone that comes. We seek to do our best to honor the table and to not administer the signs and the seals of even the new covenant and the emblems that God has given us to give a false profession, or a false, an unbeliever, a false sense of security. I think that that is a major issue within the church today. We're baptizing false converts and we're not guarding the table from anyone. Thus, they walk away with a false gospel. They walk away believing that, that, that they can come to the table without faith. They come to, 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 the, to the baptism waters believing that they can come to the, the waters by faith, that they can join the without faith, that they can join the church without faith, that they can be a member of the church of Christ without faith, that they can be a Sunday school teacher or a helper or a preacher or a teacher without partaking of Christ, without repenting of sins, without coming unto Him finally and fully. I get all that. That what we should do is guard the waters of baptism. What we should do is guard the table. What we should do is preach a, a sound gospel that requires men when they come to the table to come with faith and they come to the waters to come with faith. Why? Because ultimately the gospel is if you're going to come to Christ, you must come by faith. Faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And that's what the Scriptures alone teach us. But at the same time, I think sometimes we bar ourselves from the table when it's unnecessary. Because we look back this week and we see a hundred things that we did that dishonored Christ. And we woke up dishonoring Him. We laid down dishonoring Him. We dreamed about dishonoring Him. You know? We didn't keep up with our standards. We didn't keep up with the standards of the church. 
or we failed and we faltered. Listen, if you're looking for some reason this morning not to take, I will tell you, you probably have a hundred. And there is some sense in which that's exactly why we should, right? Not saying that you do it flippantly, not saying that you do it with unbridled sin, but saying that you do it recognizing that without Christ, you're nothing. That you need Him this morning. That you need His broken body. You need to be reminded that His blood was shed for you. You need to do it, and you need to do it by faith. And that as you come to Christ by faith, not only in this, but all throughout life, what God does is that He communes with you. He shares with you. He fellowships with you. He reminds you. He loves you. And He reminds you of all the tremendous benefits that you have because you are united with Him. That's why we come to the table. The, 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 the participant in the table this morning is not someone who comes perfect or with their life all together. But they come faithful throughout the week, um, seeking to honor Christ, falling along the way, repenting of sin, but, but, but clinging to Him by faith. And thus we gather together on a day like today. And you wonder if you should take or not. Um. I say if you take by faith, then brothers take. If not, refrain. Because you'll heap upon yourself a whole host of condemnation. That it seems to me that the requirement of Christ is to come and to come by faith. Not to come as a member, not to come as a, a servant, not to come as a teacher, not to come as uh, someone that's baptized, not to come like that. We do the same for membership here. People ask me, what does it take to be a member of the church? It seems like all God requires is faith and repentance. That's all, so that's all I'll require. You know, Sometimes we put some extraordinary uh, legalistic standards upon certain things um, such that no one can come. Or they feel bad in coming. It's a, it almost is like a sin against their conscience to come. They come in fear and they come um, uh, inappropriately. When God, God desires us for you to come by faith and in partaking, He makes you more like Himself. Some of you don't understand this at all. So I stand up here and I talk and it's like I'm just speaking a foreign language. And maybe it's because you've never partaken by faith. Maybe it's because you've not consumed Christ at all. Maybe this is nothing more than just tradition to you. Maybe it is just somewhat of a ceremonial rite now that we've become a part of the church. If that's you this morning, I beg you along with Christ. I implore you to come unto Him, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and He will give you rest. I beg you this morning that He is the bread of Christ. He is the bread of life. That outside of Him all men are dead. That if a man will come and if a man will enter into heaven, he will only come by one way and that will be by Christ. 
You're seeking and you're laboring men and women, uh, some of you to, 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 to satisfy your souls by the things of the world, gripping whatever relationship, whatever idol, whatever toy or trinket that you can find. And at the end of the day, you're still as empty as a dry well. You're a broken cistern in which the waters just flow through on a day-to-day basis. And I beg you this morning to come to Christ. And to come to Christ is to eat His flesh and to drink His blood. And to do that is to consume Him, to, to be a, a consumer of Christ, to take Him in, to bind yourself to Him, to believe on Christ. And that if you'll do that this morning, you will have life and you will have it more abundantly. He says that anyone that will come and drink of this water to take of this well um, will never be thirsty again to drink of the water of life and to drink it uh, freely. And listen, it's a well that never runs dry. It's never never a fountain um, that falters. You can have this morning as much as you want. That Christ stands in glory as as the Savior of men's souls and and He gives to them His real presence. He fellowships with them in a manifest way. That we are not um, people who will one day have an inheritance. We have that inheritance which is today and it's Christ. And the Christian life is simply spending the rest of our lives learning what those benefits are. You will never get more of Christ today than what you've had. You will ne- he'll never love you today more than He already has. You will never be more in some sense than, than what He has made you already. You know, Paul argues that in Romans 6. You know, he says, stop sinning. You, you died to sin. Therefore, you shouldn't sin any longer. You know, it would be like, it would be like you and I adopting a child, bringing him into our home, waking up one morning and he's gone. Um, DHS calls you. Department of Human Services, Department of Child Services calls you. Says they found your child. He's down at the food stamp office um, trying to get bread. What would you say to him? Son, you're not that guy anymore. Why are you going? Why are you looking for something else? All that is mine is yours. There's plenty in the fridge. There's on the counter. But for some reason, we just can't get over who we were, can we? It is so hard to leave the men that we once were and to think of ourselves any different than what we are. It almost seems sinful sometimes, doesn't it? It almost, it almost seems sinful to that little boy or seem wrong to that little boy to take something off the counter that's not his. He's new to the house. He doesn't really feel 100% affectionately um, towards the family. It still seems like a foreign place. The Christian life sometimes seems like a foreign place, doesn't it? You know why? Because I've lived with myself for the last 37 years, you know, two decades of which I was lost as a ball in high weeds or a needle in a haystack. And I didn't know left from right spiritually. I didn't know a book of the Bible. I didn't know God. All I knew is I loved myself and I wanted more of it. You know, um, God saves you. He brings you into His family. He makes you one of His own. He adopts you. And He says, son, this is all yours. And last week, it's like, son, why are you down there looking for bread? Why are you looking for something else to sustain you? Why are you grasping after every other idol that you can find? You know, why are you seeking in your wife or your children or your family or your church only things that I can give? You know, you're one of mine. Son, sin will never give you that. 
All that I have is yours. You can have as much as you want. The problem is, is that on most days we don't want it. We don't want Him. We want the world and everything that it has. We want our flesh and everything that it can give. We want the pleasures. And He cries out to you today saying, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. Come unto Me. I read Deuteronomy 26, verses 65 through 67 to you because that's the way I felt the past couple weeks. Anxious, anguishing in my soul, undone, fearful, afraid, wondering who I am, wondering where I'm going, wondering what I'm doing with my life, wondering if this is what I'm supposed to be doing at all in a lot of senses. And at some point, he said, son, look at me. Stop looking at yourself. Look at me. And that's what he wants you to do this morning. When you come to the table, when you sit under the Word of God, whenever you uh, read your Bibles at home, when you're seeking the Lord in prayer, it is beyond easy to make them all about us. When it's all about Him. It's all about Him. Some of you have never benefited from the Lord's table because it's all about you. The bread tastes horrible. <laughs> little grape juice will never satisfy anybody. You know? And you're not sure if you're worthy at all. So it's more painful to take than it is not. Because you're wondering if you're heaping condemnation upon yourself. I've had people like that. I think of one particular woman whom is precious to me. She never took the Lord's table one time. Every day she'd tell me, she's like, I'm just not ready. I'm just not ready. I'm not fit for the table. If you're not fit for the table, you're not fit for Christ. And then that should be a very reason why you should take. You should, you should repent of your sins. You should look to Him because He stands here this morning in the table, in the preaching of the Word, in the Bible, in one another, in the church. And He is saying, come to Me. But you must come by faith. You must come believing. Are you coming this morning believing? If not, I implore you on behalf of Christ, trust Him today. He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. When you see Him, um, the glories of the world fade away. You know, It's like finding that significant other in which you wondered why you ever lusted after another woman at all when you found her, after you found her. She doesn't even compare to the glories of Christ. And trust me, she won't be offended by that either because she sees the beauty and the majesty of Him as much as I do. And without that love of Christ, I could never love her in the way that He loved me. But He is the purpose of all things. Stop spinning your wheels, church. And look to Christ. Stop exhausting yourselves and find Him. Stop looking for the only thing that He can give. Um, in the backyards and the businesses of this world. Look to Christ today. So just a moment, we'll take...
And I pray that you'll take by faith and that as you take, the Lord will overwhelm your soul with his presence in such a way that he will extend grace to you that will carry you through the rest of your life. And you'll look back and you'll say that that was more than just a ceremony. That was Christ meeting with us. And he did it in such an amazing way. I want you to leave today being able to say, I communed with Christ. I fellowshiped with Christ. Not that I ate some crummy bread and ate a thimble of juice. But it was just as Moses in the wilderness um, met with Christ through the waters of that provision, through the provision of waters. We too met with Christ as today we broke the bread of life and contemplated for just a few moments his broken body and his shed blood for us. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glories of Christ. We thank you for the privilege it is just to call upon your name. Father, we revel in the majesty of Christ. I don't even know if that's the appropriate word. More than a word, Father, I pray that our hearts hearts have. Father, I am so appreciative of your word. I'm so appreciative, Lord, of of your grace that you've extended to a sinner like me. I'm so thankful, Father. I'm not offended at all that you've condescended. Father, I realize that otherwise I would have never found you as lost as I was, Father. It was not a loss of ignorance, but a loss of depravity. Father, I sought my own life and to glory in it, even in a moral way that others would uphold me, all the while rebelling against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, even Christ, my Savior himself. And Father, you came to seek and to save that which was lost. And in that I glory. I glory in your Son. I glory in His majesty. I glory in His power. I glory in His grace. I glory in His mercy. I glory in the fact that for almost two decades He had every right, Father, to send me away. But He didn't. He continued to pursue me. And in so I found Him. And in in the reality, Father, He found me. (laughs) Not that I was lost to Him, Father, but that He was lost to me. And uh, I'm thankful, Father, that you continue to feed me week to week and day to day, Father, and month to month on the glories of Christ. May you continue to do that, Father. May you do that for us as a church. Fathers, we gather together on days like today. And, um, and many of us, Father, are discouraged, disparaging, Father, even um, our lives and, and all that you've given us, Father. May we repent of that and see the blessing of life 
Uh, may we see all that we have and recognize that it comes for your, from your hand, Father, and thus be satisfied with it. May we not seek bread from another world or another realm, Father. May we not seek physical satisfaction or emotional um, gain, Father. May we seek you and you alone. And may, he be, may you be found in Christ. So, Father, may your Spirit rest upon us in such a way to reveal to us, Father, the glories of Christ. Otherwise, we will never find you. Father, we thank you for times and means and, and things that you've given us, Father, to constantly um, provoke us back to you. I thank you for our church, Father. I thank you for um, ordinances like the Lord's day and, and um, days like today, Father, and ordinances like the Lord's table that just continually draw us back to you and show us, Father, your sufficiency. Father, I pray that we will receive it well and receive it by faith, Father, even now. God, we love and thank you and just pray that your presence would be uh, forever known, Father, and temporally known here at Christ Bible Church in a way that changes us, Father, not only for eternity, but even now. May we walk away different because we met together today, um, particularly because you met with us. Father, may we say today that we fellowshiped with Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.